the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that it's telling us the same story from beginning to end. God is revealing himself to us. He's revealing his plan to us. And he is sharing very profound information. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Father God, uh, thank you for this opportunity to come and gather and, and be here and dig into your word and study what you have for us. God, I, I pray your inspiration tonight that your Holy Spirit would be with us and in us and opening our eyes to this amazing truth um, and to your plan and how you clearly laid it out. God, help this scripture just bring us warmth and enjoy in knowing how awesome you are uh, and help us to love you more through this this process in jesus name amen so we're in chapter 19 we just did all like four chapters last week because we wanted to cover really the part of the story that focuses on absalom but absalom is still kind of focused on in the beginning of of chapter 19 and last week and this week will be sort of paired together uh, in, under, in an understanding. So, you know, if you don't remember last week's after tonight, um, you know, re-listen, check it out. But this idea of Absalom and who he was and how he utilized his natural beauty and tendency to tell people what they want to hear, to be this kind of perfect politician to take the throne and usurp the throne from David as David gets exiled. And then ultimately his, his failure and destruction at the hands of, of Joab, David's top commander. And then David is now left with his son is, his son is dead, his army has claimed victory, uh, and David's mourning, even though Absalom himself was just sort of a lost cause. He, his whole life, really, the only one, the one good thing he did was take in his sister after Amnon uh, defiled her. But other than that, Absalom was pretty much just a selfish kid who didn't really bring much value to the table other than what he saw in his own intrinsic value in his natural beauty and ability to tell people what they wanted to hear. But this is where David is. He's, he's left with this news that his, his son is dead, but his army has won. But nothing yet has happened. So let's find out 
what the ramifications are of this, of this victory. So verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 19, Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Well, of, of course, he, he told his army not to harm Absalom when they went after him. But they did. And so he finds out his son is dead and he's, he's mourning because his orders were not taken seriously. Verse 2, so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for all the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed and steal away when they flee the battle. So this is weird because this army just won a decisive victory. And the person who committed treason and tried to usurp the throne from God's anointed has been taken out of the way. Under normal circumstances, this would be a victory lap. This would be a party. The army would be hooting and hollering and coming back like they just won the homecoming game. But instead, there's this somber attitude. Verse 4, But the king covered his face, and the king cried out loud to the voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. He's grief-stricken over what his son has gone through. Now, Absalom, what he did under the law, really this would have been the required outcome. He committed treason. He committed murder. He committed adultery with the king's concubines. All of this, really, he kind of got what was coming to him, but this doesn't take the grief away from David. So Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all of your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants, for today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have, been, it would have pleased you well. So Joab comes to him and he confronts him. And Joab has been extremely bold. Remember, Joab is the one who actually put the spear into Absalom and killed him. And now he's confronting David and saying, uh, you won a victory. All of us, your army, got this victory for you because we stayed loyal to you amidst his treason. And you're acting sad rather than giving us what we deserve. Rather than being happy that we took care of you, that we saved your life. Your concern is for one instead of the rest of us. And so Joab is sort of half right and half wrong in that it's okay to mourn for your dead child. There's nothing wrong with with David doing that, but he is right in the fact that the kingdom has been corrected. The person God wanted on the throne has the opportunity to be back on the throne, and that's all at the hands of those who stayed loyal to David and saved him. Verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has fallen from your youth until now. So he's basically saying, if you don't go out and give kind words to the men who fought on your behalf, you're going to lose them. Now we don't know if Joab is right or wrong and how loyal people feel, you know, because this could easily be personally motivated from Joab because of his guilty conscience, because he's the one who killed Absalom. 
But nevertheless, David does take his advice. In verse 8, it says, The king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So David comes and he comforts and he gives, he speaks peacefully to his men. And then all the armies of Absalom, all the people of Israel, left and went back to their homes. So everyone that fought on Absalom's side fleed and went home. And now David returns to Jerusalem. So verse 9. Now all the people were in dispute through all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies, and he delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So the people are now connecting all the dots. They're talking amongst themselves and saying, We turned our backs on David. And we turned our backs on David, the king who killed Goliath, the one who freed us from the hand of the Philistines, the one who increased our land, the one who brought the, the tabernacle to Jerusalem and conquered Jerusalem and gave us our capital city. This king, we turned our back on and gave allegiance to his son, and now he's dead. So what do we do? Do we bring David back? Do we remember everything he did for us and invite him back? And this is what the people are talking about. So this also tells you another piece of information in that David just didn't go in and take the throne and rule with an iron fist over everybody. He waited until he was invited back. He waited until it was the proper time. All of this is important because we will see what all of this is pointing to at the end tonight. So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house, you are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king and say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. So David demotes Joab and promotes Amasa. Amasa was Absalom's commander. And so David makes a political move that also helps him personally because he gets some revenge on Joab who killed his son. But then he makes a good diplomatic move and makes Amasa the commander of his army. And that helps unite the, the bridge between the northern and the southern parts of Israel. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. So they sent his word to the king, return you and all of your servants. So then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go meet the king to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Gera, a Benjamite who was from Beharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants went with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. There a ferry boat went across to carry the king's household uh, to do what he thought good. All right, so we've got a couple of characters that are, are going to be important for the next little bit of this chapter. You have Ziba, who was a, a servant 
And I think he was the servant of Mephibosheth. Maybe I'm missing that or not getting that right. But then you also have Shammai. Now, Shammai is the guy who, when Absalom took over, was throwing stones at David and cursing him and basically just gave all of his allegiance right over to Absalom. So very political move. Uh, He detects where the political winds are moving, and he goes and he gets on the winning team. Uh, But now that team has lost, and he's trying to earn his graces back with David. So now Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. He's saying, David, don't take it to heart that I was cursing you and throwing stones at you and telling you to get out of Jerusalem as he's down at his feet begging for mercy. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? So, He's begging for mercy, and one of the sons of Zeruiah, David's sister, so one of David's nephews, just like Joab, is saying, why don't you make an example of him? He cursed you. You're God's anointed. Why don't you put him to death? That's what any other king would do. And it's true. That is what any other king would do, but this is David's response. David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? That you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not know that today I am king over Israel. Therefore, the king said to Shammai, you shall not die, and the king swore to him. So David's response is, the people haven't made me king yet. And even even if slash when they do, why would I want more bloodshed when we're coming together? That doesn't make sense to David. Because David doesn't think like the other kings. David is thinking from a godly perspective. He doesn't want to bring more bloodshed. He offers mercy upon his return. Verse 24, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king. The king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Please remember that phrase. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For my father's house were but dead men before my lord, the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right have I to still cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. So then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So this is the interaction with Mephibosheth. He goes to Meph- Mephibosheth comes to the king, and he's excited that David is back that the king has returned, the king's in Jerusalem. And he says, so glad you're back. And David said, why didn't you come with me? And his response is, "Uh, I'm paralyzed. I don't know if you noticed, 
but I'm paralyzed. But my servant said he was going to go to you on my behalf. So Ziba went to David, but Ziba lied about Mephibosheth. And Ziba told Mephibosheth, or told David that Mephibosheth had plotted. Now that David and Absalom were warring with each other, he was hoping they would kill each other so he could take the throne back and be the heir to the throne because he was the last member of Saul's house. That's what Ziba said, and that's not what Mephibosheth thought. And so he's now writing the, uh, the wrong that Ziba enacted, and he's, he's correcting the record. And David's response was, why don't you two just split the land? So he doesn't, again, doesn't bring judgment on Ziba for lying to him. He tries to bless Mephibosheth and take back his harsh words when Ziba gave him the news, the, the false news, or as you know, some would say, the fake news. But Mephibosheth, his response is, I don't care about the land. I'm just glad you're back. That's someone who gets it. He looks up to David, and he knows he sees God's will in that David be sitting on the throne, and he says, I don't care about getting something from you. I'm just glad you're back. I'm glad God's will is back in order. Verse 31, and then Barzillai, the Gileadite, came down from Ragalim and went across the Jordan to the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim. And he was, very rich, he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a burden to the Lord, the king? So he's basically telling him, I'm old and I'm experiencing all of this, all of these issues with aging. And I know that I'm not old, but the loss of hearing is, at least Juliet's voice is something that I just don't hear anymore. And um, I think she tells me that all the time, but I don't know. Uh, I'm sure if you, any of any of uh, you are married here, you know that that's the case. I don't know what it is about us, but psych- psychologically, I think hearing the same pitch over and over again, we just we tune it out. I don't know. I don't know. I apologize, Juliet. I'm sorry if you're listening to this. I. I still love you. I just don't hear you. (laughs) Verse 36, your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, uh, Chimham. Let him cross over uh, with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. So the king answered, Chimham, Uh, shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, uh, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own place. So you have another person who's just excited that David's back, and he blesses David and asks for nothing in return. And then he gives David a servant, um, a servant that David is going to bless. But nonetheless, David's the one who gets stuff out of this deal just because another guy is happy that God's will is being done. Verse 40. Now, 
the king went on to Gilgal and Kinham, uh, Chimham, uh, whatever, however you say it, went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought to the king his household and all David's men with him across Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king, therefore we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? We are not the first. Uh, were we not the first to advise bringing back the, our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So there's this sort of infighting between the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah, which includes the tribe of Simeon. And so they're basically just arguing over each other about how much they love the king and how much they want access to the king. And they say, there's, we have ten tribes versus your two. Shouldn't we have more access to the king? There's more of us. Uh, and who cares? It really doesn't matter. The point is, David's back. The king is back. Now, that's the whole chapter. That's the whole chapter 19 story. And if you combine that with what we talked about last week, you might be wondering, why are we stopping here? What's the significance? What seems important about this? I could not get past it myself today. I just I couldn't go further because I just felt that this was so profound that I didn't want to miss it. Here's the story, the big picture of what we read. David, the rightful king, the one whom God had anointed to sit on the throne, the one who was promised that through his line would be the Messiah, that guy was sitting on the throne. He was expanding the kingdom. He came in peace. He united the kingdom. He expanded the kingdom. They were at their height with David. But then, someone who looks kind of like David, his son, Absalom, but even prettier, a new shiny version of David comes along and David is rejected. David is rejected and kicked out for a while. And then a war takes place. And at the end of that war, the false David, the new shiny David, is dead and the king returns. This should sound familiar because we started off this Bible study by looking at the book of Revelation. This is the story. Jesus comes. He comes in peace. He comes with a message and he gains popularity through his ministry. But then at some point in his ministry, the people turn on him and they reject him and he dies. Somewhere off in the future, we are told in Revelation chapter 6 that the first seal that's opened in the end times is there will be a rider on a white horse carrying a bow. So Jesus also returns later in Revelation 19 on a white horse. So what we have is an imitation of Christ who will come. A false Christ, a new shiny idea, real handsome, really good at telling the people what they want to hear. 
and everyone's going to love him for a short period of time. But war will break out and famine. And then at the end of the war, in the Battle of Armageddon, the real king will return and the false Christ will die. This story with Absalom not only sets up the page so that eventually the son who takes over for David is Solomon so that we can have Jesus' first coming, the story also paints an incredible picture of Jesus' second coming and the whole mystery of him coming, gaining popularity, getting rejected, having a false version of him gain popularity in the meantime until war breaks out and then he comes at the end and the death of the false Christ happens and then reunited and it feels so good. And I just couldn't get past it. I thought this is way too profound to spend time and and miss it. Because the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that it's telling us the same story from beginning to end. God is revealing himself to us. He's revealing his plan to us. And he is sharing very profound information in that Absalom represents a type of Antichrist, a type of end times ruler. And uh, I don't know, you tell me when we talk tonight what you think of that. Let's pray and then close out. Father God, thank you for your ability to weave true history into the story to tell us a future truth, to line up parallels with prophecy so that we can see a clear picture that your painting and what your plan looks like. And God, thank you so much that your plan is for ultimate victory and for the return of the king. God, thank you so much for the first coming and for your grace. And thank you that we have the ability to look forward to know that the ultimate victory is coming and the new Jerusalem is coming and that we get to have an eternity with you because of this story that we're discovering. Thank you. Help us to be grateful and in awe of you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen.